1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again Samuel, and Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. This is God's word. Thanks, Chris. The stand is not locked. Um, that's okay. <laughs> so good evening, everybody. Uh, so we're continuing through uh, the Gospel according to David, looking at uh, the books of First and Second Samuel. And today the narrative is transitioning from Hannah, which we looked at for the first three weeks, and now it's shifting to Samuel, her son. And uh, to sum up this passage, this passage is about leadership. It's about leadership. And more specifically, it's about what does failed leadership look like? And then contrary to that, uh, what does good leadership look like? And so I challenge all of you that this, this passage is extremely relevant for you. I mean, if you just go on Amazon and look up leadership, there's no shortage of books on leadership. And so some of you see like the immediate application for you. Maybe you lead a team at work. Maybe you're in an official role at this church. Um, you're in other leadership positions, so you already see the relevance of the topic of leadership. But I know some of you, too, just don't really see yourself as a leader. You see, you know, you're the type of person who likes to help those who are leaders, and those are good positions. But um, consider this. Number one, 
you are following somebody. Uh, you are listening to somebody. So think about the types of people you are looking to to lead you. But then number two, there are people in your life, whether you realize it or not, or whether you like it or not, who you are leading in the sense of you are influencing them and by them watching your life, uh, they are being pointed toward what is true and good and beautiful in this world, or they are not. And so this passage really hits home in a lot of ways. And so what we're going to look at in this passage is, uh, we'll just look at it under two headings. So first we're going to see the failure of Eli's leadership. So he's this priest in God's household. Um, so Eli failed as a leader. So how did he fail as a leader? So we'll see the negative example. And then we'll look at what does God call Samuel to, who he raises up to be a good leader for Israel. So first, how does Eli fail as a leader? And then second, we'll look at what does good uh, leadership look like uh, as we look at the life of Samuel. So first, we'll look at Eli's uh, failed leadership. So in verse 1, it says, the word of the Lord was rare in these days. That's a key phrase. Okay, the word of the Lord was rare. And then you go on reading, and what we quickly find out is it's nighttime, and Samuel and Eli are sleeping. And in verse 3, it says, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Now, what you should ask yourself is, are you supposed to read that metaphorically or literally? The lamp of God had not yet gone out. Is it literal or metaphorical? Just, if you nod your head, that's the right answer. <laughs> okay, so first it is literal. So what they would do is at nighttime, they would light the lamps, and then they would put them out in the morning. And so when it says the lamp of God had not yet gone out, we can surmise it's probably about four o'clock in the morning or so, so it's about to go out, but the lamp hasn't gone out yet. However, it's also a literary device uh, to show us that the spiritual presence of God was dim in those days here in Israel, but it hadn't yet gone out. Okay, so why was the spiritual light of God's presence dim in these days? Well, verse 2 says, Eli, he's the head priest, his eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see. Now, yes, he was old, so his body was breaking down, and his, he was having a harder time seeing, but Robert Alter, who's a wonderful Hebrew scholar, he says when the narrator, because uh, Hebrew uh, writers are always very careful with what they choose to put in, what they choose to omit, when he puts in that detail uh, that Eli's sight, his eyes have begun to grow dim, what he is saying is that the reason why the word of the Lord was rare in those days, the reason why God's spiritual light was dim, was because Eli was failing as a leader. Okay, so his eyesight is also a, a metaphor to show that he becomes spiritually inept as a leader in God's household. And it's interesting when you see, okay, so how was he failing as a leader? And it wasn't that he was, you know, being overtly abusive or aggressive. Um, what, how he failed as a leader was passivity. Uh, he failed as a leader through passivity. And we know this in a couple of places. So one in chapter two, which we didn't read, but in chapter two, we know that we hear that Eli has two sons. Uh, Hophni and Phinehas, and these guys are described as worthless men. And so Eli's sons, they're serving in the temple, and here's what they're doing. So first, they're stealing uh, offering from people. So what would happen is people would come and they would bring meat to offer as a sacrifice, and God had set up through the Levitical system, means by which um, it was through the Levitical law. The priests, uh, part of how they would be fed is they would take a portion of the sacrifices that were offered. And there were very clear parameters on how this was to be done. Uh, so certain parts of the meat they were allowed to take. And what they were told to do is they were, they were only allowed to have boiled meat and they weren't allowed to have fatty portions of the meat. Okay, so they had to wait until the, the fat was boiled away. But what Hophni and Phinehas are doing 
is, hey, Titus, I know, I know, sorry, your dad's a pastor. Um, <laughs> so, so what Javi and Phineas are doing is they're, they're stealing meat, okay? So they're stealing more than, than they're supposed to. But also what they're doing is they're, they're stealing the fat that goes along with the meat too, and they're roasting it. They, they're not boiling. And, and as I was reading this, I was kind of empathizing with them a little bit. Like, who wants boiled meat? Like, if you invited me over for steak and you said, hey, Steve, you know, do you want the steak grilled or boiled? I'd be like, what's wrong with you? Like, you need help. <laughs> I want a grilled steak, you know? So, but the, the point is here is they're, ex- they're specifically and explicitly violating what God had clearly told them not to do. So that's the first thing um, they're doing. But the second thing, which is even more absurd, is they're, they're sleeping around with the women who are serving in the temple. Okay, so the, these are leaders in the church, and they're abusing power, essentially, is, is what they're doing. And so notice, God doesn't come after Hophni and Phinehas, he comes after Eli. And, and he says, and he, this happens in chapter two, where he says, I'm going to remove your house. I'm, I'm gonna remove your house from its office, I'm gonna remove strength from you, um, because you've been passive in disciplining your sons. So Eli, he, he basically, he gives his sons like a verbal slap on the wrist, but he does it very late in the game, and he doesn't actually follow through and remove them. He just lets them continue to do what they're doing. Okay, he's, so he's extremely passive. And then you see in chapter 3, which we heard read, so when Samuel hears the word of the Lord, God tells Samuel to go to Eli and tell him, I'm going to follow through on my promise to remove your family from my house, and, and your sons are going to die on the same day. Now, first, we should ask, okay, why is God pronouncing condemnation? And anytime you look at, you know, all through the Old Testament and the New Testament, anytime God co- comes after his people uh, with rebuke, it's not because he's a, a vindictive, mean-spirited being. Why does God rebuke his people? It's always to offer them another chance to repent, to stop making themselves their own gods, but put their hope in him, the one true God who they're made for. So anytime you see God exercise discipline, it's always to try to bring people back to him. So that's why he's doing this. And then what does Eli say um, when he hears about what God's going to do with his family and his sons in, specific, in, in particular? He says in verse 18, it is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. Now, when you read that, at first it sounds like piety. Like Eli's like, well, of course, you know, it's, it's God, I'm going to defer to him. But it's not piety. It's, it's Eli being passive. So Eli should know that this is a chance to repent and to discipline his sons. But essentially what Eli is saying is, like, whatever. You know, do whatever you want with my sons. I'm sure, you know, for any of you, if, if, you have, if you have children or you found out that God was going to discipline severely somebody that you love, you would hopefully do what you, know, what you see Moses do for his people. Like, intercede. No, God, please give them another chance to repent. But Eli's just completely passive. And because he's passive, you see abuse of power in God's church and all sorts of nonsense going on. So his failure is he's not stewarding God's word, and he's being very passive in leadership. And so just a couple applications here. Um, So first, just in general terms, is just think about, okay, where might you be being passive when it comes to God's call in your life? You know, you see that the contrast with Samuel, when God calls him, Samuel eventually says, you know, here I am, speak for your servant here. like Samuel is ready to go. So just where in your life might God be calling you to do something, but you're being passive? So it could just be you're being a bystander in your workplace and not actually like making an effort to work for the common good of people in your workplace. Like th- this matters. It doesn't always have to be super spiritual. 
Or where is God calling you to stop having a condescending attitude towards somebody or a bitter attitude towards somebody? Where is he calling you to seek forgiveness? Where is he calling you to give of your time and your treasure? When God's people sit by, um, that's basically a a failure to lead in, in the way God wants you to. But a little bit more specifically, Eli's failure wasn't just being passive in general, but it was being passive in his household. And so here we have a, so Samuel's bringing up a lot of, you know, more poignant and sensitive topics. But so here's a message to the men based on this passage. Who you are as a man has deep and massive ripple effects. If you're married, okay, and the woman that you're married to, and then all throughout the rest of your life. And there's, there's no getting around this, you know, for for better or worse. And even if you're somebody you say, you know, well, I'm, I'm not a Christian, I don't, you know, buy into this whole idea of a man, you know, being a leader of a household, I challenge you respectfully, I mean, read any of the best-selling memoirs that have come out over the past five to ten years by non-Christians, um, and, and they, they speak to this same idea, that when a man fails to lead in the home, be it either being too passive or being too aggressive, it, it's so damaging. I know Pastor Nate, when he came here a few weeks ago, he spoke to, you know, even just some of you personally uh, may have experienced something like this. And, like, I just finished this book uh, called Educated. It's written by Tara Westover. Some of you may have read it. It's been on the New York Times bestseller list for a few years now. It's, it's, it's a great book. But, so in Educated, it, it, she tells this story. It's a, it's a memoir. So she was raised on a farm in Idaho. And essentially, her, her parents, but it was all driven by her father, kept her completely sheltered. So they would never be allowed to go to a hospital because it was part of a government conspiracy. Um, they weren't educated. Uh, what they did is they just worked on their farm, and they were expected to stay there. And they were sheltered from everything that would, that would go on in the world. But long story short, she gets into BYU, uh, a very hard school to get into. And then she goes on to get her PhD from Cambridge. And, I mean, she talks about when, like, during one of her first classes at, at BYU, she asked in class, it was in her history class, I think, she asked the teacher, like, what the Holocaust was uh, because she hadn't heard of it before, and her teacher and all her classmates thought she was making a very uh, ill-suited joke. And but what she tells in the story is, so, she, you know, she had a brother who was physically and emotionally abusive, and there was all sorts of train wrecks happening in her family, and it was because her father was not leading Okay, sometimes he was too passive, like in the case of her brother. Her dad wasn't standing up for her siblings and herself. And other times he would be too aggressive. And so you see this not just in the scriptures, but even just, you know, in common experience. When a man does not lead well, it has horrible ramifications. And so just for those of you who are married and are men, you, you are called to lead well. And what, it's not what a lot of people think it means. What it means is as the leader in your home— you are called to love and cherish your wife and put her interests above your own and serve her as Christ loved the church. Okay, and so what this doesn't mean is you need to know more scripture than her. It doesn't mean you need to be more gifted than her. Kelsey is far more gifted than me and knows a lot more about scripture in many places than I do. But what it does mean is as the man, one, you're gonna be the one uh, who will be held to account before God on how you led your household. But two, your wife should flourish in her gifts. Um, her voice should become stronger, um, you know, both in the home and in the areas of life where she has authority and, and does things. And she should flourish as a result of you leading and loving her well. This is the opposite of chauvinism. 
Okay, and so just two questions to ask yourself are, one, these are, these are hard questions, but one is, is my wife more like Jesus because she's married to me or in spite of the fact that she's married to me? It would be one question. Is my wife more like Jesus either because she's married to me or in spite of the fact that she's married to me? And number two, just, and this would be a good thing to work through with your spouse, is, is, it, is it clear to my wife, not just through what I say, but through my actions, that she is the most important human relationship in my life? And, and talk about it. I mean, Kelsey and I talked about these questions pretty recently. It was, a very, it was a hard, but very good conversation. And for those of you who are married, uh, one of the most powerful things you can do in your spouse's life is encourage him. Like, so many men, especially in today's era, feel very lost and defeated. And so one of the most helpful things you can do for him is encourage him on where he's leading well. Because no voice has the power in his life outside of God's that, that yours does. And number two, just, yeah, be, be honest in where are the areas that he, he can improve. Okay, that, that, that's one of the best ways he can grow as a leader. Okay, just areas that, that you're saying, hey, like, you're doing great here, but here's an area where I feel like you could, you know, you could love me more or direct our family you know, more clearly, more, more confidently, because I can trust you because you're following Jesus first. Okay, so there's beautiful ramifications for in the home. And then last on this note is, if you are a, so if you're a single woman who uh, desires to be married, um, I am, and I say this because, so men wrestle with this too, but I've just, I've walked with so many women now through this that I feel like I'm negligent if I don't say something. I'm, I'm begging you, if you want to be married, please only date a man and then eventually marry a man who's going to point you to Jesus Christ. It is, it, it is so important. It's, it's so important. Okay, so two, two people who aren't Christians getting married, that's great and that's a beautiful thing. But if you, are, if you are following Jesus and then you end up in covenant, with a man who, who's not a Christian. It's not the fact that you're superior to him. It's just the fundamental fact that you're, you're worshiping two different lords. And it's never gonna be a, a, a neutral or middle ground. And so I'm, just, I'm, I'm pleading with you, ever, having walked again through this with, with a lot of women, um, please only date and then eventually marry a man who, who loves Jesus and points you to Jesus. He doesn't need to be perfect, okay, but someone who's gonna help you follow Jesus. Okay, know, that, know that I say this in love. Okay, so that's, that's number one, Eli's, Eli's failure as a leader, okay, being passive in the home and not stewarding God's word. So next let's look at, okay, so what is the solution? Uh, what does God do? Um, and what he, what he does is he calls Samuel. And so we have this exchange where Samuel is sleeping and God calls Samuel and Samuel says, here I am, and he thinks it's Eli. And so you have a classic like older person, younger person exchange where the younger person runs into the older person's room and he like wakes him up and the, the older person says, you know, what are you doing awake? You know, go back, you know, get your own drink of water. So he sends, he sends Samuel back. And finally, Eli realizes, oh, this is God calling Samuel. So first, this is showing how like two, of the peop two people that should be able to recognize God's voice aren't recognizing God's voice. I mean, these are, these are leaders in, in the temple, in the church, basically. So the word of the Lord is rare. It's emphasizing that. But then eventually, Samuel hears God's voice and he says, speak for your servant hears. So then Samuel goes and he tells Eli the hard news about what's going to happen to his house. And then eventually in verse 19, it says, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And so 
what's interesting here is there's, there's corruption, right, taking place in leadership. And so this has, I mean, very clear implications for even today, right? Um, when there are corrupt leaders in office, they need to be removed, okay? So both in the church and outside the church. There's, there's no excuse for that. Uh, but notice what God does. The solution isn't, okay, let's dissolve the church. He says, no, let's remove those who were in office, okay, who weren't clinging to my words, and let's put in leaders, okay, in the church, in God's family, who hold to God's word. And when it says God didn't let any of um, his words fall to the ground through Samuel, what happens is, is Samuel grows up to be the, the first in the line of prophets for Israel, and he points them back to Christ, and he eventually anoints King David, right, who brings unification to the nation of Israel. And so, I mean, just look at where Israel is and where we are today. It's very, very similar, very similar uh, circumstances. Okay, so for Israel, the word of the Lord was rare. Okay, this period was marked by moral relativism. Okay, and even in the church, God's word was rare. It's very much the same today too, is it not? Like, is, is the word of the Lord rare? At least in, in the West it is, okay, in Europe and America. In other areas of the world, it's booming. But where we live, especially in this city, the word of the Lord is rare. And so the point here is, is God, God is calling each and every one of us to treasure and speak God's words so that his power and presence can go forward in our city. It's what happened with Samuel, and, and it's what he's calling us to do. Okay, in our cultural moment where the word of God is rare, he's calling us to treasure God's word and speak God's word. And by doing that, God's power and present, presence will go forward in our city. Okay, like in, in Samuel, why was the word of the Lord rare? It happened, it, it, was, it was the believers, right, who weren't speaking it. And so when we look at our moment today, we, we, what we shouldn't do is, oh, okay, bemoan the fact that Christianity is getting pushed to the margins and point fingers. We need to look inside our own house first. Okay, so let's just talk about that for a little bit. Like, what does it look like to, to treasure God's words and speak God's words? So the first is, do you, do you treasure God's words? Do you, do you treasure God's words? Um, do you cling to it as sweeter than honey? As finer than gold? Okay, is it the main thing that you look to for guidance in life? Do, do you study it with other believers throughout the week? I've been really encouraged, actually, by about three or four of you have approached me over the last, like, four weeks alone and have just talked to me about how you're reading through the scriptures for the first time or you're, you're wanting to, to grow in reading the Bible. So that's encouraging. Keep going. And, and for all of you, just, it, like, just be honest. Do you, do you only read God's word when you're, like, you know, cramming for a discipleship group or a community group? Or do you just come to church on Sunday, which is really important, but, but do you meditate on, on it each and every single day? Like, do you understand the power of God's words? I'm realizing that I'm just only beginning to glimpse the, the beginnings of it. Like when you read God's words and hear God's words and speak God's words, this isn't just mere, you know, moral instruction, but you are, this isn't being dramatic. You, you are holding a tiger by the tail. Because God's words, they're not just platitudes. Like God's word speaks realities. Okay, before there was anything and he said, let there be galaxies and light and animals, there was. Okay, when Jesus Christ, the word become flesh, walked on earth and he spoke things and they happened. Okay, when there was a storm in the boat 
He said, peace, be still. And the ocean became as flat and clear as a pane of glass. It's the power of Christ's words. When Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, died, he said, Lazarus, come out. He didn't do CPR. He spoke. And death itself was broken. In John chapter 8, when the woman was caught in adultery, and he said, neither do I condemn you. That woman was objectively not condemned because he spoke and then went through on that promise by going to the cross. God's words are, they're efficacious words. In other words, they are effective. They, they do what they say. Okay, so when you sin or when you blow it and you read passages like in 1 Corinthians 6, it says you are washed, sanctified, justified in the name of Jesus Christ. That means you are objectively renewed and cleansed and clothed with the very purity of Jesus Christ himself. When you look to Jesus' words in in the Gospel of John where he says, I am the resurrection and the life, that is a, not just a, a word, but a person that you get to cling to that's stronger than sorrow or death itself. It, there's nothing like God's words. I, I, I promise you, your, your, your main problem is not trying to get over a particular addiction that you have or a particular habit that you have or trying to have particular experience or trying to fix a certain relationship. The primary need that you have is to rejoice in and meditate on God's words. There's nothing like God's words. Nothing heals like God's words. Nothing comforts like God's words. Nothing brings life like God's words. Nothing will give you a sure footing. Like, for example, a passage from Isaiah 43 where God says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. There's no promise anywhere else like that than you can get in God's words. We have to to treasure it, to to speak it to each other. And then number two, not just speaking it to those inside the church, but those outside the church. I'll I'll be real with you guys. Um, I, I was reading an article this past week. He's a pastor in Denmark, which is even far more secularized than than America. And he brought up a good point. He said, you know, the, the primary problem for believers isn't increased secularization in the West. Uh, our, our main problem is believing Satan's lies that we don't actually have hope in life to offer those who, who don't know Jesus Christ. And so and I think in our, our cultural moment, there's this, there's this lie that believers, that people who follow Jesus believe. Deep down, I think you really believe that by offering Jesus to people in your life, you're somehow offering them into a life of restriction rather than offering them abundance, which is what Jesus always offers. And so if God's word is silent, if if a lot of people in our nation right now don't know about the beauty of who Jesus is, we have, we have to look at ourselves because if, if we're not speaking it, then, then who is? Okay, who, who do we expect to tell others about Jesus Christ? Do, do you have something to offer those who don't know Jesus? Yes, you do. 
And it's not your own compassion. It's not your wisdom or eloquence. What you have to offer is Jesus himself. That's what all of scripture points to. When you offer people Jesus, I mean, my goodness, you're offering them through his sacrifice forgiveness that eradicates any guilt that they may be carrying. No amount of counseling or self-affirmation can do that. You're offering them someone who tells them, I am the resurrection and the life, no matter what sorrow or misery they're facing. Do you, do you have something to offer when you, when you offer people Jesus Christ? Yeah, yes, you do. You, offer, you get to offer a, a far bigger story than the narrative our culture is pushing, which is basically live for yourself, right? Be true to yourself, express yourself, and then you'll be happy. Okay, and I, 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 I get that, but that is a, that can only take you so far. That's a, that's a thin story to live in. Instead, you get to offer them to, to step into God's story who made them, who loved them, who gave everything for them. And because it's God's words that bring light and life both to us and to those who don't know Jesus. And you can trust when you speak God's words, they, they always do what they say. So Isaiah 55, it says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout and give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. God's word, it never returns empty. And so I'll, I'll close by sharing a story because I know sometimes you hear this and there's at least a part of you that says, I wish it would do that. Um, so a number of months ago, there was a girl here who started coming to our church. And I, I met with her and, you know, she said, I just want to learn more about following Jesus. And I said, well, you know, that's awesome. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that. So how did, how'd you get here? And she said, well, you know, a, a long time ago, when I was just a little kid, I was next door neighbors with a few girls. I was friends with them. And their, their parents gave me a Bible. And they said, you know, you should, you should really read this. You know, um, I like, uh, you know, recommend it to you. And they, they told her about Jesus. And, you know, she said, oh, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. I'm not really interested. But she kept the Bible, and she just put it away. And as she was talking to me, she said, you know, I just, I never got rid of it. But I just, I kept, I held on to it, but I never read it. And then after I graduated from college, so about 18 to, to 20 years, right, about 15 years later, about 15 years later, I was going through a hard season. And I brought out that Bible that my neighbors had given me. And I started on page one. And I just started in Genesis. And I kept reading. And just the other week, I just finished the Gospel of John. So I just learned who Jesus is for the first time. And then I was at an internship, and I met a guy who was a Christian, and we got time out church, and he uh, came to doxology. And so I asked if I could come to church, and so here I am. And her name's Sasha. Uh, she, she said I could share this story. Uh, she wanted me to share this story to you guys uh, because she, she thought that it would give you guys hope. And this is the Bible that she was given 15 years ago. 
It's a, it's a kid's Bible. Okay, so God can work through a kid's Bible. It says, uh, this Bible was presented to Sasha on the 27th of March in the year 2005 from the Schuler family. And she knows Jesus now because somebody cared enough to give her God's word, even though it didn't look like in the moment it bore any fruit. So cling to God's promise. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that for which I purpose. Let's go to God in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this hard and also uh, beautiful account where we get to learn from other people. Father, help us to cherish your words uh, as the very words of life that they are. And uh, no matter where we're reading in scripture, help us to see how they always point to your love for us, most clearly displayed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Um, If our church is known for anything, Lord, um, let it be known as a group of people who treasures your word, uh, speaks your word, um, not out of superiority, but in love and compassion and humility, uh, both to those in this church and those outside this church. And may you work through your word uh, to build up this church and uh, sanctify us who already follow you and bring those who don't know Christ to find life in his name. Uh, thank you so much that your word always does what it says, that it never returns empty. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.